If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I'm sure you can tell that I'm not Jacob, who is your regular host. I am Carrie Baldwin, and I'm filling in for Jacob. Jacob has lost his voice to a nasty cold, so he asked me to fill in for today's episode. Now, this episode is a discussion Jacob and I had on the topic of Roe v. Wade being overturned. I won't steal my own thunder here with further introduction of myself. You'll actually hear that in a minute. But what we discussed was the libertarian pro-life position, the differences between the statist and libertarian and especially anarchist enforcement of laws and restorative justice as a concept that is more aligned with both libertarian and Christian ideals of justice. So the main questions that we sought to answer were whether libertarianism or anarchism is a pro-choice or pro-life political philosophy. And second, as pro-life libertarians, what do conventional pro-lifers get wrong and pro-choicers get right or somewhat right? Third, we discuss how an anarchist and a Christian reconcile being against abortion but not being in favor of punitive prohibitions against abortion or a quote-unquote war on abortion. And then finally, we discuss what the Bible teaches us about enforcing justice and the role of Christians and civil governance in this pursuit. So kick back and enjoy this not-at-all-controversial topic. Tonight's guest is Carrie Baldwin. She is returning to the show for the third time, I think, with current events and stuff being what they were. I thought this would be a perfect time to bring Carrie on to, you know, go a little bit deeper dive into the subject of abortion, Roe versus Wade, all that stuff, because it's a very complicated issue. And Carrie does a good job at bringing some clarity to those topics. So with that said, I'll bring Carrie up. Carrie, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, Jacob. How are you? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Carrie, this is your third time on my show, but maybe just, I don't know, give another introduction just in case there's people who are maybe not as familiar with you and your background and just tell everyone what it is you do. Sure. So I'm an independent researcher and actually co-author now of the book, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. I've got my own podcast called Dare to Think, and I'm also a Socratic coach. I teach online courses in critical thinking. So I do all of that at mereliberty.com. That's my website. And really a large focus of my work or my research is towards a libertarian theory of abortion. And I describe it that way because I really do believe that libertarianism only supports a pro-life position. And that's based on my explanation of fetal self-ownership. 
I'm actually working on a formal presentation that I intend to submit to peer review, hopefully by the fall. So I'm working on that right now and actually formalizing all of this stuff into a coherent argument. So that's about it. So the first time I had heard of you was the debate you did with Walter Block, which pertains to tonight's topic. But that was like, what, late 2019? Yeah, it was December 2019, right before... Before the world ended. Yeah, right before the world (laughs) ended. That's right. (laughs) What's funny is I went back... So like for prep, I've been going back and kind of watching some of your old stuff. And -hmm. I went back and watched that debate. And I remember... Gene was plugging a debate then that actually didn't actually happen until like a few months ago. Oh, and it, but like really? he was plugging, yeah, because I guess they had to reschedule because they yeah. couldn't meet for over a year. But it was mm-hmm. funny because like I had this moment like, wait, no, that debate just happened. When did this debate happen? I was like, no, that happened 2019. I was like, <laughs> it was just, I forget. It oh, was some, that's so funny. It was between Scott Horton and Bill Crystal. That that's was the one. Right. Yeah. He yes. was plugging that in the, 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 like, at the end of your debate with Walter. And that didn't happen until, like, I think, like, February of this year or something. So, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to really give a shout out to Gene Epstein from the Soho Forum and even Walter because that debate really gave me a platform for sharing these ideas, which have resonated well with, honestly, not just with pro-life libertarians, but some people who I would say leaned pro-choice as well. That's I frequently get messages from both sides telling me how much they appreciate the debate. So Yeah, that's good. So I guess the way we can start out, maybe, if you could give, I guess, like a five to 10 minute overview of sort of like your pro-life argument from a libertarian perspective. And then we can kind of get more into details and specific points and questions and stuff after that. Sure. Well, I think this really started because I had a lot of criticism, not just for the pro-choice side, but for the pro-life side as well, what I call the conventional debate. And, you know, we get very knee deep in the weeds when it comes to this debate. And I wanted to bring some clarity to it. So the libertarian view of abortion really stems from the question of human rights. And of course, libertarianism bases human rights in the property ownership that we have in ourselves. So self-ownership. And In order to have self-ownership, there are only two requirements. You must, one, be human, and two, you must be in possession of your own body. And of course, I make the argument that the zygote from the moment conception is complete is a self-owner and therefore a rights-bearing individual. And then, of course, the other piece of libertarianism is the non-aggression principle. We are not allowed to initiate violence against another person or their property. And I argue that abortion is an act of violence, an initiation of violence against the fetus. And so it's impermissible to allow abortion in a libertarian society. So you've said before, and we can kind of like build your argument as we go along here, something you said in your debate with Walter that I, it sounds right to me, but I kind of want to give you a chance to maybe flesh it out more. Is mm-hmm. the you say that when we absolutize fetal rights, we absolutize women rights? Or I think the way you because you you guys had like the little contention like, well, we don't like root rights, so then we you rephrased it to be like, no. So when we absolute absolutize the rights of fetuses, we absolutize the rights of women. So could you go into a little bit more of sort of what that means? Right. Well, if human rights are founded in 
our humanity or founded in our self-ownership, there has to be a beginning to that because we all have a beginning. So the question is, what's the beginning? Now, what's interesting about the phrase women's rights, I mean, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the term women's rights? Abortion. Abortion, yeah. (laughs) Abortion. And so we don't, (laughs) it's like we don't have a concept of women's rights apart from abortion. When in reality, women have many of the same rights that men have. We have a right to bodily autonomy. We have a right to agency. We have a right to make you know decisions about our own lives. And we even have you know rights concerning reproduction, whether we want to use our bodies for that purpose or not. So the problem is we have to establish when they start. And so if we leave that question ambiguous, which libertarians have notoriously wanted to leave ambiguous, and I think in part because they haven't really known how to answer that question, but also in part to just grow the movement, maybe even grow the party and allow for a bigger tent so that they can get their message heard. They've been very ambivalent on when exactly these rights start. And so there's been this internal debate within libertarianism as to whether libertarianism supports a woman's right to have an abortion or whether libertarianism supports fetal rights. So, but that leaves everything ambiguous, right? And Murray Rothbard said that the whole point in using property rights was to disambiguate the issue. And if we can disambiguate the issue, then we can actually absolutize rights. And of course, they're not absolute in such a way that, you know, you can violate the rights of others. Obviously, there are limitations on our rights where we can't actually use them to to violate somebody else's rights. But they have a starting point because we have a starting point and we should be able to figure that out. So at any rate, if we can establish when human rights begin then we can very clearly see what rights women have when it comes to reproduction. Heck, what rights men have when it comes to reproduction? That's a question that is also sort of left out there hanging. What rights do children have? I mean, I'm, you know, just born So it extends to more than just women. It's just like if we don't have, if we can't have that clear foundation of when we, like, like when personhood and life begins and then where rights begin, and where they come from, then we're on murky ground for establishing rights for men, women, children, uh, anyone, right. even after birth. Is what is that basically what you're saying? Essentially, like, uh, although yeah. I emphasize that I don't make a personhood argument, right? So that's I true. don't. Yeah, I don't equate self ownership with personhood. Personhood, for those who are unfamiliar with it, is a philosophical debate, and it was actually a point brought up by a philosopher na- by the name of Marianne Warren who was trying to make a pro-choice argument. And so she's the one who came up with the personhood argument. And she sort of arbitrarily picked something like six, seven, or eight, something like that, characteristics of personhood. It was rather arbitrary. And one of the major criticisms against her was that it actually excluded certain born humans from personhood as well. Yeah. So I'm very careful to draw that distinct that distinction and say self-ownership is not personhood. It's not the same thing. Self-ownership is the condition necessary to establish whether there's a rights-bearing individual. And so if we can do that, we can actually clear up a lot of these issues 
concerning rights of reproduction, concerning rights as it relates to sexual assault, sexual crimes against you know children. A lot of these issues that we're dealing with in our culture today that our current system really hasn't been able to deal with very well. Sure. One of the things I noticed, I guess I wanted to ask and talk about too, you know, the basis of your argument very often seem to be stemming from emphasizing the part of libertarianism that sometimes certain libertarians don't want to talk about, which is the aspect of personal responsibility being paramount. And the idea that if we're going to maximize women's autonomy and equality under the law and equality with men, because often the way that the pro-choice argument will go is like, well, women can't be equal to men unless they have the right to abortion because they don't have that same reproductive freedom is the way that they would phrase it. And the way you've put it is that if abortion is normalized, then this actually is, I I don't know, the way I've interpreted it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is almost that it's degrading or devaluing to women because it takes away women's agency and responsibility in terms of accepting natural consequences and their ability to, I guess, do what's right. Can you expound upon that, maybe clarify? Yeah, so if we recognize that if we recognize the rights of the fetus and that that begins from the moment conception is complete, then what woman has the capacity to do? Well, first of all, she's a self-owner, but she also owns a means of production. She happens to own the ultimate means of production, the means to create new humans. Species kind of dies out if you don't, you know... Not to interrupt, but like, it's like, that's like one of like, sometimes people I think are really dismissive of that, like that ownership that women have over that, because like, that's really important. Like, if we don't have that, like, society falls apart completely. It's it's really important. And I mean, not to, I know your argument is libertarian, not religious based or not entirely religious based, but it's like, to me, there's a religious component of like, that's why as Christians, we have such a high view of having families and children. It's because of that importance. But I would say, I mean, yes, it is incredibly important. I think historically there has been some mistaken views about this fact that women are the ones who are capable of producing children. You know, historically children were considered the property of the father, not of the mother. Historically, women were were really there just sort of as vessels to provide heirs for men. And I mean, yes, in some ways that's true, but if we actually are recognizing the woman's self-ownership, right, and the fact that she is an owner of a means of production, specifically human reproduction, this is a position of power that she has. She has agency over her body. She gets to make decisions about her body in pregnancy, in labor, in delivery, in how, you know, how she's going to rear those children. I mean, yes, ideally she is, she's consulting with her husband, but at the end of the day, she's the one who's making the decisions about her body and she has a right to do that. And not just a right, but she's the best person to make those decisions. That is something that libertarians believe is that the individual is in the best position to make decisions about their own body. If we actually follow that through to logical conclusion, to to the logical conclusion with women, that means she does absolutely have bodily autonomy and agency. This means she's 
she has to take in information from her environment. She has to be able to assume and calculate risks. She has to be able to take decisive action. And all of that involves dealing with the consequences of her choices. So, you know, the feminist view right now is sort of more along the lines of women are victims of nature, right? Where inherently unequal or unequal to men because we have to carry around the baby. Feminists don't see this as a position of power. They see it as a position of weakness, which is ironic because that's the patriarchal view. <laughs> like they're just peddling what the patriarchalists say, which are that women are in a weaker position. Another now, example of horseshoe theory almost. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, she's definitely vulnerable when she's, or more vulnerable when she's pregnant and when she has young children, which is, um, one of the reasons why it's best to have children in the context of marriage, but that doesn't make her weak. It means that this is a cooperative experience, but we also don't take away her agency in the whole situation. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. There's definitely a framing from the pro-choice side and feminist side broadly that, yeah, it's very, this goes beyond just even feminism. It's just, everything is construed in these victim sort of narratives, which seems to be very, you know, that they often, and it's weird, like they'll construe themselves as being humanistic while having such a low view of, of humans and responsibility and, and sort of like, you know, we're just, we're just these helpless creatures that can't like, we don't have any agency in anything we do. We're just helpless to, and it's like, that really rears its head in this topic, I think, like you mentioned. Yeah, well, and, you know, modern feminist theory, <laughs> modern them- feminist theory is a giant mess. And if anybody's interested in my take on feminism, you can go to my podcast, Dare to Think. And I believe it's episode 19, What is Feminism in Simple Terms? I actually explain what it is, what it's not, why it's a huge problem. But One of the popular strains of feminism today is actually based in something called standpoint theory. And standpoint theory is is what is driving critical race theory and wokeism and all of that, which is why you see these parallels with victimhood and the oppressor-oppressed paradigm, right? Yeah. Except in this case, women are oppressed by nature. (laughs) And so we need the state to correct that. I don't know why... I really don't know why that view is appealing to women because that means you are perpetually at the mercy of the state. That means you have no independence as a woman. You have no power as a woman if you are inherently oppressed by nature. But if we turn it around and we see that this is actually a position of power, that women actually, her choices even in choosing a mate are very, very important. Yes. Isn't there a statistic like, you have twice as many female ancestors than male ancestors or something yeah. along those lines, kind something of? Something along those lines, yeah. Yeah. Another interesting little little point is that women are the primary consumers in the economy. We're the ones who are making the purchases. Even when it comes to products that are designed for men, they're marketed towards women. And there's a reason for that. It's because women are, they are either in the position of actually mothering and managing a household or they are preparing for that or they are searching for a mate with that in mind or they are actively trying to 
prevent that from happening. But every stage of a woman's life is actually informing her choices in the market. And that's where we have this ability to actually regulate the market through through our choices and through our responses to the market. Yeah. And I, I guess like the it's one thing for non-libertarians to maybe have a conception of freedom that's sort of more based in a sort of positive rights framework where freedom comes from the state giving us things. But you would think libertarians would understand that's not what freedom comes from. And freedom does have to be sourced in sort of that personal responsibility and the maximal acceptance of responsibility and, and realizing all the different choices that you have in all those different stages of life, like you mentioned, uh, which is something that like, you know, pro-choice libertarians can often be good on having that mindset in other topics. But then when abortion comes up, it seemingly flies out the window. Well, I would, I would say that philosophical libertarians, I think are pretty good on the personal responsibility aspect. They do shy away from positive rights. And I think with good reason, because the concept of positive rights is that the state gives them to you, right? Yeah. And I do make an argument that the fetus has a proprietary interest in the mother, meaning that she has a positive obligation to provide food and shelter to her offspring. But that's a natural obligation that's founded in nature. And if I'm right about that, it's actually the reason why the state can't create positive rights. So the other thing that I would say about pro-choice libertarians, because I don't want to dismiss them out of hand, their concerns and criticisms about how conventional pro-lifers intend to enforce abortion prohibition, I think are valid and we should pay attention to them. I'm currently working on an article to talk about the black market for abortion services that are that's going to result if Roe v. Wade is overturned. The infrastructure is already there. And one of the reasons why it will be so difficult to enforce is because um, abortion, especially in the early stages, looks just like a miscarriage. Like if you're on the outside and you don't know if the woman has consumed something in order to induce abortion, all it looks like is a miscarriage. In fact, one of the articles that I'm referencing from, there was a doctor that even said, hey, if, if you take this abortion pill or you take these these herbs to induce abortion and you start having problems, you know, you start hemorrhaging, you go to the hospital and you just say, I just started bleeding. I don't know why. So they know that they can get away with this because it looks just like a miscarriage. Well, what are conventional pro-lifers going to do? Hold all miscarriages suspect? Right. Like that, yeah. that would be a terrible idea. So pro-choice libertarians are right to... to Wait, as if we concerns. don't already have a massive violation of privacy <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. It was Scott Klusendorf of the Pro-Life Training Institute who said that a war on abortion would look th- like the war on drugs. And he was not kidding. That was not hyperbole. And as far as pro-life libertarians are concerned, certainly pro-choice libertarians, we should all be standing up saying, no, not at all. That's not acceptable. Pro-life libertarians can maintain that abortion should be illegal while also maintaining that we need to have a just system and not just this authoritarian police state free for all. Sure. You kind of gone into it a bit already, but if we, you know, maybe some, if you have any other thing you want to add, you know, (laughs) what are some of the things that pro-lifers and maybe even pro-life libertarians often get wrong that you think that we could do better at in this conversation? Well, I'd say... 
you know, there's a lot of pro-life libertarians who appreciate what I've said and appreciate my position. And so I don't want to say that this is true of all pro-life libertarians, but if I get any criticism from them whatsoever, it's on this issue of enforcement. I'm right. I oppose authoritarian enforcement. I oppose a war on abortion sort of policy. I even really oppose imprisonment and a more punitive enforcement because it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, we look at the criminal system now for violent crimes, for murder, for theft, those sorts of things. And our system is designed or intended, I shouldn't say designed, it's intended to produce deterrence, but it doesn't. It's intended to reduce recidivism, but it doesn't. And so I'm very adamant that I don't believe that those are good ways to enforce abortion prohibition. And I get pushback on that. And I think, I don't know if this is true, but my impression is that some pro-life libertarians are do sort of fit into that caricature that they are just disenchanted Republicans who are trying to find another route for their conventional pro-life paradigm. And I think that a pro-life libertarianism is distinctly and uniquely different from a conventional pro-life perspective. And I do really hope that pro-life libertarians really start grasping that idea and coming to understand that it is significantly different from the conventional view. Yeah, definitely. I've seen pro-life conservatives, Christians, and and yeah, even some libertarians have a a very vengeful outlook on this topic. Which, mm-hmm. which on one hand, I I even sometimes find myself falling into because sometimes when you're, especially if you're on Twitter, because Twitter's the worst place to be to have this conversation. <laughs> if you're on Twitter, or I've encountered this in real life sometimes too, and certain pro-choicers will make arguments that just make your jaw drop and you're just like how can anybody have such a you know depraved outlook on this topic and advocate for such you know such horrific ideas or or actions towards the most vulnerable and i think where it stems from is a lot of us have this i know i have a very strong inner sense of justice i got into fights when i was in high school always because i was defending somebody who was getting bullied and mm. I've always had that desire to defend those who can't defend themselves. And sometimes that meant if there was a bully, I'd hit the, you know, go punch the bully in the nose. So he, you know, would think twice about bullying again. And I think there's some merit to sometimes having some sort of an aggression response to certain acts of aggression. I'm not saying that there's never a place for that. But I do think at the same time that this topic, as you've alluded to, comes with a lot of complications. Like one of the things you've pointed out is, I mean, there is nobody in a better position to advocate for the baby or the fetus than the woman. So enforcement that would be targeted at women would be seemingly counterproductive to trying to disincentivize abortion. This gets into like a lot of different topics. And it's like, there's the libertarian views on justice. And then there's also a lot of pro-lifers are Christians. And this gets into varying Christian views on enforcement and justice. And I know you've talked a lot about the idea of sort of like a more restorative view of justice, which I guess, would that be both libertarian and Christian? You know, like where they kind of meet or I guess go into that a little bit. Yeah. So first of all, strictly speaking, I am an anarchist. And so 
in an anarchist society, you have what's known as a polycentric legal order. So how exactly enforcement would work out is really going to be dependent upon how it arises in the marketplace. But I am an advocate of restorative justice for dealing with abortive women. The way this works, and I think I've recommended it on here before, I recommend it again, the documentary called How to Love Your Neighbor. It is produced by Free the People, which is Matt Kibbe and his wife, Terry Kibbe's organization. Actually, technically, I found out it's Terry Kibbe's organization and Matt Kibbe is the face of it. Um, (laughs) But um, at any rate, that documentary is absolutely excellent in explaining how restorative justice works. It's actually been used in Longmont, Colorado for over, I, I believe, 25 years, over two decades. And they have, basically the way it works is instead of, and this works for at least on a practical level in Longmont, Colorado, it works for most situations, maybe not all. It wouldn't work, for example, with abusive relationships that would have to be handled differently. But the way it works is instead of having an offender, you have a responsible party. You do have the victim. But the idea with it is the victim actually has a voice. The victim or somebody who's acting on the victim's behalf is able to sit down with a small group of people from the community. They're able to uh, talk to the responsible party face-to-face, convey to the responsible party what the harm was, why it was harmful, how it actually affected them. And it becomes a learning experience for the responsible party. And then the responsible party has an opportunity to actually participate in the in the process of restitution. And this is a process where the the community, I keep using that word, but it's really just a small group of volunteers who participate in helping that person see how they can use their own strengths to to bring restitution to the situation. And that can be in any number of ways. It's a very creative process. The idea here is is that it promotes taking responsibility for your actions, which is very libertarian. It's very Christian. It gives the victim a voice and it doesn't ruin people's lives, right? This doesn't go on people's records. They're not prevented from being able to participate in society after this, you know, that they're not prevented from getting jobs or going through a personal development so that they can actually grow from, from that situation and not repeat that, that offense again. And so they've had great success, great success with, it creates incredibly low recidivism rates, which actually results in just people it's not really a true deterrence, but people, you know, are actively choosing not to commit these crimes again. And I think it's perfect in the situation of an abortive woman, an abortive woman, because there are two primary reasons why women seek abortions, poverty and abusive relationships or bad relationships. This is an opportunity for her. If she's in poverty, it's an opportunity for her to actually get some help to get her out of poverty, right? If she's in an abusive relationship, maybe she can actually get help to get out of the abusive relationship. Like we're not leaving people hanging. 
when we use this restorative justice model. So I'm a big fan of that. I do think that the other piece that can be used is, is tort law. This is the idea that, you know, you, you take somebody to court and they owe you some dollar amount for the offense that they've committed against you. I think that that's more appropriate in situations maybe where there's, you know, mens rea on the part of the woman. She's, you know, intentionally uh, committed a, a crime here. And so I think, you know, paying a dollar amount of restitution is valid. It's certainly appropriate for providers, people who Mm -hmm. are providing these services. They know better than that. Um, And the interesting thing about tort is it does produce a deterrence. When you know the cost of the crime, you can actually take that into consideration when, when you're thinking about doing the crime. And so tort law actually produces deterrence. And that's something that our current system is lacking significantly. Um, I do want to touch on the Christian aspect of this because, and I'm going to pull up my notes, so pardon me, I will be reading a little bit from what I've got here because I'm going to be quoting scripture. Yeah, that's good because it's like I can make really good cogent arguments for like libertarian like support of of your theory of restorative justice because it just, Mm -hmm. it makes sense. But yeah, there's a lot of pushback from the Christian, from some of the Christian pro-lifers on it. So, so yeah, go ahead. So if we understand that Romans 13 is, is prescriptive for civil governance, right? Not descriptive. We've had, you've had this conversation with Gregory Baus. Then Romans 12 provides some context for, for how we're supposed to conduct civil governance. So, some passages that I pulled from Romans 12. First of all, verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by Mm. testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then when we jump down to verses 16 through 17 uh, and also 18 through 21, that reads, live in harmony, in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's Mm -hmm. the final verse before we get into Romans 13. And I think, you know, the world's idea of justice is vengeance. That's not the Christian view of justice. There's another passage in John 8, when we're when the uh, scribes and the Pharisees bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And, you know, this is, <laughs> this is right along the lines of the complaints that conservative Christians have against women who seek abortions is it's often associated with sexual sin, right? Adultery in its many forms and that sort of thing. So the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman before Jesus who is at the temple teaching, you know, a crowd of people. And they say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. That is Jesus. 
Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Excuse me, the light of life. So vengeance is not Christian. And it's not. And it's not like this woman got off the hook. This happened in front of a crowd of people. That crowd of people then figured out if they didn't know already that that woman was an adulterer. But she wasn't given punitive action, right? The punitive action that the law required was stoning. And, you know, Romans 12 is saying of your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And what you find with Jesus and this woman is there's none of that. There's no punitive action taken against her. Now, he tells her, you're not, you know, I'm not condemning you. Go and sin no more. That's the recidivism that we would use in in the legal sense of the term and the theological sense of the term, that's repentance, right? But the idea is, is don't repeat this offense. It's very easy for Christians to get morally outraged at abortion. And I understand why abortion is morally outrageous. (laughs) But moral outrage is not justice. It's not a substitute for justice. It's not not compassion and it's not a substitute for compassion. So we cannot say that, you know, throwing her in prison or giving her the death penalty or, you know, taking this tough on crime approach to abortion, which has utterly failed as a policy with other crimes, taking that approach with women and abortion is just, it's inviting injustice. And Christians have to be concerned with that, especially given what scripture says about what a Christian mode of of justice actually looks like. So I would say that that's my Christian defense of restorative justice and tort law. I agree with everything you said. And it's, I was actually just talking about this in my last, no, two episodes ago. The way I put it was that, like, you know, Christian governance is foreign to the world's governance. It's not based in, and yeah, I mean, Romans, you know, contrary to how some people read the Bible, like, you know, you're supposed to kind of read the whole book and chapter by chapter, not act like Romans 13 is just this weird, you know, book onto itself that doesn't have anything before or after it. So yeah, there's, and it's tough because like it's easy for some pro-life Christians to sort of like, in a weird way, they're doing like the equivalent of what sometimes you see people on the left do when they kind of like clutch their pearls and sort of like, oh, are you are you condoning or are you not like, you know, as morally outraged as me? You don't see this for how evil it is. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. no, I, I see it for how evil it is. And I'm not any less angry about it, but it's like, I mean, for one, I mean, the penalty of sin is death. So like, you know, the fact that we are all still here shows an incredible amount of love and mercy that God just gives us. So like, if I'm going to start, if I'm going to start from that foundation 
and then view everyone else. It's like, you know, to me, there's almost an idolatrous nature to, to, to wanting to take vengeance against people. Because I mean, as it says mm. in Romans 12, like vengeance belongs to God. If mm-hmm. you're going to take that from God, well, you know, o- you know, only God is capable of delivering vengeance in a way that is righteous and holy. When we do it, it's distorted. It's sinful. Well, and by leaving our vengeance to God, that allows God to work in the lives of people and bring them to repentance. Romans 2, right. 4, Romans 2, 4 says that the way that God brings us to repentance is through his loving kindness. It's not from beating people over the head with the Bible. It's not from trying to coerce a, 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 a facade of a Christian culture where everybody's just going through the motions, but you have no changed hearts. However, it is that that we feel slighted, and you know, I I don't want to necessarily endorse pacifism because I don't see myself as a pacifist. But there are aspects to ultimate justice that are outside of our control. Yeah, and so what we do have control over, we should be paying attention to. Well, what's actually effective? What is what is the reflection of, you know, what is, at least as far as Christians are concerned, what is reflective of what God expects of us from these passages? And I think restorative justice is much more aligned with that. I will say for those who, you know, maybe are a little bit uncomfortable with this take and still want to see or still believe that the state has a punitive role, my question for them is what is the goal? in ending abortion? Is it just to prosecute women or is it to actually end the practice of, a, of abortion? Is it actually to save lives? If it's to save lives, then we do what's effective, not what's expedient, not what's popular, not what we've done traditionally. We do what's effective and what's effective isn't even the model that we have right now. Yeah. What, what's effective is restorative justice and tort law. Yeah. No, I mean, and if the idea is to make the war on abortion like the war on drugs, then what we will have is something that is not effective and that only yeah. seeks to create more victims, which doesn't seem to be helpful. It, and if it, and if yeah. the only the only victory you gain there is you can sit on a moral high ground in a sort of like high and mighty way and be like, ha, we got it. We banned abortion. You can't do it anymore. It's like, yeah, but they can. And like you yeah. said, I forget where you said this before. I don't know if it was on my show or your show or or in the debate, but something that stuck with me is you said at the end of the day, the person who has the most power to stop the abortion is the mother. Right. Because like they're the ones that are going to be looking themselves in the mirror holding that abortion pill in their hand. Exactly. We either empower them to make the right decision right. or we put all this fluff around it and all this persecution and hateful rhetoric out there and stuff that just makes it more likely that they're going to, you know, like just do it behind closed doors. And is that any better? Uh, you know what I mean? Like you said, if the goal is to, if being pro-life means saving lives, then yeah, we should do what saves lives. Right. Well, yeah. And what I've said in the past is the one person standing between the fetus and the rest of the world is the woman and she yeah. matters. And if we don't factor her in, her bodily autonomy and agency into the equation, and we just say the state needs to handle this, we learned this during the pandemic. When the object of state interest exists inside of you, 
you suddenly disappear. Your rights don't matter anymore. The pandemic should be a wake-up call to pro-lifers that that's how they would handle enforcement of abortion prohibition. The woman would disappear. And we don't, she can't disappear, especially if we want to save lives. We have to see her. We have to see her. We have to see her bodily autonomy. We have to see her agency. And we have to see what it actually takes for her to make a life-affirming choice. And that we have studies that actually show us that. When she feels like her most basic needs are, are met, she will choose life and not abortion. In a libertarian perspective, where does that come from? That comes from the free market. Yep. So in light of all this, you know, we have the reports that Roe versus Wade has, you know, so a majority draft or something as far as the potential to overturn it. I'm still kind of in that mindset of like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, I'm me not too. holding, I'm not really me holding too. my breath because it's holding just, my breath. Yeah. But like, if Roe was to be appealed either now or down the road or something, would that be good or bad? I mean, I lean towards good, but I think it's a mixture. And what do we do in the here and now? Like, obviously, the state has, while it exists, I guess it, it's going to play a role, whether we like it or not. And mm-hmm. so what should we be doing as Christians and libertarians if Roe is appealed, or even if it isn't? Like, like what can we be doing in terms of trying to promote better, I don't know, is there a way we can, if, because I, I don't want to make, you know, perfect the enemy of the good. Obviously, right. we're both anarchists. We would prefer to see a, you know, full private law, polycentric legal society exist. We're not there yet. We're not close. So what can we be doing in the meantime with the awful state mechan- state government mechanisms we have to at least, I don't know, make the situation better, if anything? Okay, so two parts to that question. First of all, is it good that that Roe v. Wade be overturned? The answer is emphatically yes. It needs to be overturned, and not just because it permits abortion, which it does, and that's obviously bad, but it also subjugates a woman's liberty interest in pregnancy to state interest. I've been trying to point this out to pro-choicers and and libertarians that Roe v. Wade is bad for women, even if you're going to take the bodily autonomy argument, right? The, or not the bodily autonomy argument, the pro-choice argument, because it subjects a woman's decisions in pregnancy to state interest. If the state is interested in forcing her to have so many ultrasounds or forcing her to have you know certain vaccinations or forcing her to eat a particular diet, or forcing her to have a certain number of children, or saying you can only have one child. That all falls under the purview of Roe v. Wade. So absolutely, Roe v. Wade should be overturned. It's bad for babies. It's bad for women. It's bad for federalism. <laughs> like it's bad. It's it's terrible. It needs to be overturned. I hope it. I hope that it does. I'm skeptical that it will. But yes, absolutely, it needs to be overturned. As far as what do we do next, right? There are expected to be 26 states that will have abortion bans. Some of them will be total, as in you can never seek abortion. Some of them, from what I understand, will be bans that begin from six weeks onward or eight weeks in the case of 
I forget which state, but there's one state that has an eight-week ban. So there's 26 states where abortion is going to be totally banned or effectively banned. And then you have, you know, whatever other number of states, I can't do math in my head on this part of the moment, but then you have some other number of states that will likely just allow abortion on demand. The way their laws are written right now are very lenient. There are very few restrictions as it exists now. In those states where abortion will be banned, libertarians, both pro-life and pro-choice, should actively work for criminal justice reform. They should actively pursue, if you have not seen the documentary, How to Love Your Enemies, please go watch it. I actually got to meet Matt Kibbe, Matt and Terry Kibbe when they came through Albuquerque and, and got to speak to them and speak to some of the creators of the documentary. They are actively working across the United States to get restorative justice as an option with district attorney's offices and things like that. And we actually had in that audience, we had a number of public defenders who were in that audience who were very, very, very interested. They weren't even libertarian. And actually, when they found out who was putting on the event, they were even a little skeptical. They were like, oh, we don't want to be associated with them. But they went anyway, and they were very, very inspired. So we can actively pursue getting restorative justice implemented in our own towns and used as a response to these bans as opposed to what some of these laws, not all of these laws are like this, but I do know that some of the laws are written in such a way that abortion will be declared first degree murder. And in those in those states where the death penalty is permitted, that will be an option. Those states, I think we should actively, as libertarians, actively seek out criminal justice reform and work to use restorative justice in those states. The other thing that we can do is advocate for a deregulation of the market. We absolutely need to roll back regulations, free up the market, advocate for sound currency, including Bitcoin and all of that. Inflation makes motherhood more expensive, guys. (laughs) Um, Bitcoin crashed, so it's worthless now. I I love the... (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. It's it's on sale for a discount. Go buy it. (laughs) So, yeah, those are the things that we do now. And we do them in the states where abortion has been banned because that's where the black market is going to start cropping up. In fact, the black market's going to be hidden in plain sight. There's already plans for for abortion activists from states where it's legal to train and teach women how to self-manage their own abortion, a do-it-yourself abortion. And they've been preparing for this. The infrastructure. Well, wasn't there also the uh, post where they were saying you can take like ivermectin to induce an it, abortion or something? Yeah, it wasn't ivermectin. It's, <laughs> or it was um, something like that. It yeah, was like another horse medication. Or, mis- yeah. Misopristol is the second regimen in a medical abortion. It's, its action is to actually induce labor and expel the fetus. And yeah, you can get it from veterinarian services. People from Mexico are bringing it over. There are international communities that have made mail order an option. And so the conventional pro-lifers may see a decrease in documented abortion. 
that should not be taken as a win. <laughs> it just right. means they're not being documented. So, you know, it's very important if you have a heart for for protecting life, if you have a heart for the mother and what she's experiencing, then there are options for providing help for her. Also, crisis pregnancy centers, I can't emphasize that enough. Crisis pregnancy centers outnumber the number of abortion clinics in America, and they are the least politicized strain of the pro-life movement. They are not there for politics. They are there for helping women. They provide wonderful services, so you can help out with that. So those are a few things that you can do, but don't don't be foolish enough to think that overturning Roe means saving lives because that's not how it works. What will abortion laws look like in the U.S. in five years? We're going to get out our crystal balls and try to (laughs) future cast this. (laughs) What what are your thoughts on that, if you had any? Well, I don't know, to be honest with you. It's really going to depend on implementation, how implementation looks with these states. Assuming Roe v. Wade gets overturned, which that decision is expected to come out in June there's going to be implementation. I imagine that that implementation will start out relatively slow and not, you know, in your face sort of drug war kind of thing. What they're going to discover is this black market, right? And these activists who will be able to use the internet, you know, blogs, podcasts, um, you know, telling, giving instructions over the air. One of the, one of the resources that I'm using for my articles is an Atlantic, a piece from the Atlantic. And she describes in detail how to, how to do a number of these things. Unless conservative pro-lifers are going to start adopting the, the censorship policies of the left, they're going to realize that they have an enforcement issue and they will either become more draconian, which is likely, or they'll back off and have to rewrite their laws. Otherwise, they, they risk becoming just, you know, unenforceable and nobody pays attention to them, right? So, you know, what, what will they look like in five years? It's really hard to say. I don't imagine that you'll have much of a difference in terms of number of states that, that have banned. I don't think that you'll get an increase in that number. I think that the states that are banning now already have heavy restrictions on the abortion industry. They're already very, very pro-life and have been for decades. And so it's really not, you're really not getting a significant change with the overturn of Roe. I'm not sure that there will be much of a difference in five years. All right, everybody, that concludes today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Jacob will hopefully be back next week. Thanks for listening and check in next time. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.